Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We ended uh, last week at the end of John chapter 12. We finished the first main section of John's gospel. Um, Jesus was doing a bunch of signs. There were seven that um, John would specifically look at and pinpoint. It was very public ministry. It was out there in the open. He was drawing people to himself. He was gathering crowds. And then at the end of chapter 12, he walks away and he hides himself. And chapter 13 opens up a new section. There are no signs to dominate this section. The focus is much more intimate, preparing the disciples to be his ambassadors through the Holy Spirit, to live out and live on the love of Jesus. John chapter 13 through 17, you can mark it. We, we call it in, in uh, Bible study, we call it the upper room discourse. The upper room discourse, John chapter 13 through 17. And John chapter 17 specifically we refer to as the high priestly prayer. But what's interesting about John chapter 13 through 17 is that it all takes place on one night in one conversation. It's all one conversation in one night. John has 21 chapters in his gospel, and five of the 21 chapters are devoted to one conversation on one night. Of all that John could have written, roughly one-fourth of what he wrote is devoted to one conversation. He spends more time on this conversation than he does on the crucifixion. Even in this conversation that takes place on Thursday night of the Passion Week when the Lord's Supper would be instituted, communion would come. John doesn't mention the Last Supper. John doesn't mention the ordinance of communion. He skips those for two reasons. He skips those, number one, because the synoptics had already been written and they already told of what had happened with the Lord's Supper, with the communion being instituted. But number two, he wanted to focus on something else, something even more intimate, something that the synoptics saw in a general sense, and John's going to specify it for us. And if it is this important to John, it should be this important to us as well. I'm so grateful for these chapters. Um, if you need comfort, if you've come this morning asking God for comfort, I believe there is comfort to be found in the Upper Room Discourse. If you've come for encouragement in your fight against sin, I believe there's encouragement for you. If you look at your marriage and you think nothing's going the way it should go, the text this morning, if you live that out, you will have a blessed marriage. You can find joy. If you need hope, if you need help, these chapters are for you. So let's read our section, very familiar section for us this morning, John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, and then we'll pray and ask God's blessing on our time. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. 
for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things... You are blessed if you do them. Father, these words are so rich. The scene is so dramatic. And I pray that by your grace, we would we'd feel like we were there in the room. We'd smell the, the smell of the Passover lamb that's been roasted. We'd get a little whiff of the, the bitter herbs. There'd be dust in the air that... And it also clung to our feet. We would see selfishness on display and we'd see selflessness on display. God, give us grace to see clearly why John wrote these words and why the Spirit wrote these words through him. God, I pray that we would have eyes that would see and ears that would hear and lives would be changed because of living these truths out. This is not easy. This is actually impossible for us to live out on our own strength. So may we renounce self-reliance and may we plead for mercy from the Savior, even now, to hear rightly and then live rightly because of these truths. We pray in the name of our Savior. Amen. The Upper Room Discourse in chapter 13 through 17 begins with a dramatic call to follow Christ's example as a servant. It's a very, very dramatic call, and we're going to split it up into three sections. You can kind of see them there in the text. The first section is in verses 1 through 5, and it's really the example of humble love. It's humble love's example. This is what love looks like. This is what humble love looks like. The second point is in verses 6 through 11, and this is humble love's motivation. This is the motivation for our humble love, for the the love that we should live out. And then finally, verses 12 through 17, humble love's blessing, the blessing that comes from living out humble love. Let's start with the first point, the example of humble love. Verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, this, this is on Thursday night of the Passion Week, right before they are going to eat the meal. And remember, Jesus longed to eat this meal. Remember in Luke chapter 22, verse 15, he says, I've earnestly desired to partake of this meal with you, with my disciples. That word earnestly desired in the Greek is actually the word lusted. I've lusted for this. Lust in the Greek is not a negative thing. It becomes a negative when you are lusting after something wrong. And so in the Greek, you can lust after good things. Paul does that in um, Philippians chapter 1. He lusts to be home with Jesus. He wants to be out of this world. And so Jesus says, I have earnestly desired. I've lusted. I've longed for this meal. And because he longed for the meal, he knew he had to keep the location of where the upper room is going to be secret. Remember, we've done this before as a church. We've looked at every day of the Passion Week. Jesus is going to enter on Sunday, triumphal entry. He's going to go into the temple, look around, leave. He's going to come back in on Monday. He's going to curse the fig tree on his way in, and then he's going to cleanse the temple, take it over, teach. He's going to go back out to Bethany Monday night, come back in on Tuesday. The lesson of the fig tree, uh, it's all cursed and withered and dried up, and so the disciples will be taught the lesson of the fig tree. And then Jesus will go back into the temple, he'll take it over again, he'll look around, he'll tell everybody, he'll teach everybody. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders will come and they'll try and trap him in a statement, but he cannot be trapped. He'll win the crowds to himself and, and therefore the religious leaders say, we can't take him by force with the crowds, they're afraid of the crowds. So they say, we need to get him alone and the next time that they know he's going to be alone, away from the crowds, is the Passover meal. And so Jesus, on the what we call Silent Wednesday, there's nothing written about Wednesday, and there's a good reason why there's nothing written about Wednesday. Because Jesus kept secret what he was doing, and Judas kept, kept secret what he was doing. Judas said, I know when we can get him. It's when they take the Passover, and the religious leaders say, when, where's the Passover going to be held? 
We will you know, hide and jump out and surprise and betray him and we're out of there. And Judas says, I don't know. The master's keeping it a secret. I don't know. But when I find out, I'm going to come get you. Be ready on Thursday night. When I find out where it is, I'm going to come get you. Jesus planned the man with the pitcher. Remember, he only sends two of his disciples to go in to Jerusalem and follow and make that ready. I'm sure Judas wanted to be one of those disciples. I'll go, I'll go figure out. I'll go help. And Jesus says, no. Jesus knew if Judas had known where the Passover was going to take place, Judas would have gone to the religious leaders. They would have all been there awaiting, and we wouldn't have had John chapter 13 through 17. We wouldn't have had the Lord's Supper instituted, communion instituted. We wouldn't have had the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus crying out to his father. We wouldn't have any of those. So Jesus keeps it a secret such that when they show up in the upper room, Jesus is able to live out all of the upper room discourse. He's able to carefully prepare his disciples. And Judas, you know, is going to leave halfway through this meal. He's going to say, "Ah, I've got to go feed the poor. And everybody's going to say, okay, go ahead and have fun. And he's going to go straight to the religious leaders and bring them back to the upper room. And they're going to find Jesus is gone. That's why Jesus is going to leave in the middle of this upper room discourse. He's, we've got to get out of here because Judas is coming back with the guards and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. So here we are, Thursday night of the Passion Week, right before eating the Passover meal. John tells us in the middle of verse 1, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knows and Jesus loves. What Jesus knew and how Jesus loves function as the rudder for everything that happens in the upper room discourse. What he knows and how he loves function as the rudder for everything that happens in these chapters. What does he know? John tells us that he knows his hour has come. He is going to die. He is going to depart from this world and he's going to go to the Father. And the tense there for knowing, Jesus knowing, he always knew. He always knew. He always knew for certain that this was going to happen. He knew that the crucifixion was soon to happen. And in the midst of the most difficult time in his life, with impending death staring him in the face, Jesus is still serving. I think John tells us what Jesus knows so that we're shocked by the way that Jesus acts. Jesus knows I'm about to die, I'm about to be crucified and bear the sins of the world, and yet I'm going to serve. I'm going to care more about those in this room than I'm going to care about myself. In just a few short hours, probably somewhere between 15 to 18 hours, Jesus is going to be suspended between heaven and earth as the sin bearer. And yet, he's going to love his own to the end, literally in the Greek, to perfection. He perfectly will love them. Not a moment where he's going to say, you know what, I I can't serve you now, I can't care for you now, i got to worry about myself. If there was ever a moment when he could do that, it's here, but he says, no, I'm going to serve and care for and comfort those that are with me. He loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end, his own. This is not a denial that he doesn't love the world anymore, John 3.16. No, he still loves the world, but he loves his own specifically, particularly, John is setting us up here by saying we're moving to how he has loved his own and how he's going to love them all the way to the end. And what Jesus did in loving his own for those three and a half years, what he's doing right now in these moments in the upper room is exactly what he's doing right now in this room, loving you perfectly. We talked about this a number of months ago in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Um, Jesus loved me And gave himself up for me. He loved his own. Sometimes I think that we tend to not feel as loved by God as we should. God loves us. He loves us. Just a big group. And Galatians 2.20 says he loves you specifically and perfectly individually. He loves you. So we have our setting. It's. Thursday night before the the Thursday night of the Passion Week. It's Thursday night before the Passover meal. It's Thursday night right before Friday's. He's going to be betrayed, put on trial, crucified at 9 a.m., um, dies at 3 p.m. And here we are in the upper room, 
with Jesus loving his own. Verse 2, John tells us that during supper, the devil is putting into the heart of Judas. It's already even happened to betray Jesus. Now, John says Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Why does he give him that specific name, the son of Simon? It's to specify the right Judas. If you remember the, the three lists of disciples, Matthew chapter 10, Mark chapter 3, and Luke chapter 6, um, those three lists of the 12 disciples give us two Judases. There's two in that list. And by the way, on every single list that is given in the Bible with all of the 12 disciples, Judas Iscariot is always mentioned last. And he's always called the one who would betray Jesus. So John tells us that the devil's already put it into his heart. It doesn't mean that Judas isn't responsible. Just like we looked at last week, Judas chose not to believe. And, and if you will not believe, there's going to come a time when you cannot believe. And that's exactly where Judas is right now. He does not want to believe. He stands in opposition to what Jesus is going to live out. Judas does not serve people. He uses people. He's going to use Jesus to get him 30 pieces of silver. He's all about the money. He's the treasurer. And he's all about using people, not serving people. There's much more to be said about Judas. But John's going to say it later in verses 18 and following. We'll get to that next week. I think why John brings Judas into this portion of the upper room discourse right here, right now, and says nothing else about him is to tell us that Jesus is going to serve even the worst of sinners. The lowliest betrayal is in verse 2, and the highest of glory is in verse 3. And Jesus is ready to do the lowliest of acts for the lowliest of people in the most inconvenient of times. I think that's why John includes What's happening in Judas's heart? Verse 3, he goes back to what Jesus knows. Jesus knows that the Father had given all things into his hands. He can't lose anything that the Father's given, and he had come forth from God. He is God. He came out of heaven, and he's going to go back to God. He's never going to be separated in such a way that he cannot go back. And in fact, when he does go back, he's going to be elevated. He's going to be um, highly esteemed, right? The Lord, the Father is going to bring him up and exalt him highly. Philippians 2 says, and he's going to sit him at the, the right hand of the throne of God. So, I think what John is trying to do here is place Jesus on the highest of pedestals. Jesus knows omnisciently everything that's happened. Nothing's going to take him by surprise on Thursday night. And he knows that he's God, very God. He's come from God. He's going back to God. He's going to receive all the glory of being God. And I think John elevates him. He's just trying to elevate him as high as possible so that when John tells us what Jesus is about to do, we would gasp in absolute shock. Wait, how could that person who is God and is going back to be glorified do what he's doing here? I think that's what John is doing. If anyone deserved to be served, it's Jesus. But despite all the things that he knows, despite everything that he is, he's going to take a towel and act as a slave. So what does he do? Verse 4. He gets up from supper. He lays aside his garments and takes a towel. He girds himself, pours water into a basin, and begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. He got up from supper. So dinner has now begun, and nobody wants to do this task. Maybe the disciples are all sitting there laying down, eating the meal, saying, yeah, Thomas, you should have done this. I mean, come on. Do you see how dirty our feet are? You should have stepped in. Peter's probably trying to tell, you know, John, come on, what are you doing? Somebody serve. Somebody do this. Jesus is going to do what nobody there wanted to do. Jesus is going to serve in a way that nobody wanted to serve. In fact, what are the disciples doing? We know what the disciples are currently doing as they're taking this Passover meal together. Luke chapter 22 tells us they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They believe tonight we're going to have the Passover meal. Tomorrow we're going to go into Jerusalem. We're going to defeat Rome. There's going to be a huge war. We're going to win. We're going to kick out the religious leaders and we're going to establish the kingdom. And they're arguing about who's going to be the closest to Jesus's throne in the kingdom. Now there is going to be a war on Friday, but not the kind of war that they think is going to be taking place. They're not going to fight any of it. They're going to run away. So they are arguing instead of serving. Now, foot washing, it was a necessity back then, right? It's 
I mean, it's still a necessity today. Um, But back then, you absolutely needed to wash your feet. You were wearing sandals. You were walking around in the dirty, dusty streets. And then when you would go to eat, you would lay down. You would usually recline on your left side. And so feet would be sticking close to somebody's face. Get, Get the feet out of my face. They're dirty. They're gross. So as you entered into a room, into a house... There would usually be, right as you entered, there would usually be a basin and a slave who would serve in that way by washing your feet. Kind of like what we do today where you take your shoes off when you go into somebody's house. Some, some houses have that. Just keep it clean. Although if you don't practice foot washing now, then you're going to have a whole uh, aroma when you take your shoes off in the house. It won't be very good. It'll, rem- it'll remind us of the common courtesy of washing our feet today. This is only for the lowliest of slaves. Nobody but the lowliest slave in the entire household would ever wash feet. In fact, it was a rule for Jewish people. If you were a disciple of a rabbi, if you were a student of a rabbi, you were not even allowed to wash their feet. That was not The rabbi would say, no, no, don't wash my feet. It was below you. You wouldn't do that. We have a great example of this. You remember in Matthew 3 when John the Baptist says, there's one coming, the Lamb of God is going to take away the sins of the world. And he's coming, and there is one, this one who's coming is one that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. You remember that? I'm not even worthy to, un- why is he untying his sandal? To wash his feet. I'm not even worthy to wash his feet. I am so below the Son of God that even the most um, unworthy or the most despicable or the most despised tasks, I'm not even worthy to do that. So this is, this is a very lowly thing for Jesus to do. I don't think we can stress enough how lowly of a task this is. And I believe that's why John, in verse 4, John's going to do some biblical slow motion for us. He's going to kind of slow the tape down so that he slowly walks through every single item that's happening. It's not, and Jesus got up from supper and washed their feet. Look at what he does, verse 4. He got up from supper. That's the first thing. Instead of laying down and in comfort and peace, just eating the last meal he's ever going to eat on earth before his crucifixion. Instead of doing that, he gets up. I'm sure somebody goes, why is he getting up? I don't understand. What's what's happening? I don't get this. And then he laid aside his garments. Now, this is springtime. This is early springtime. So probably three layers. And he's going to take off the two layers and strip down to the, the... um, inside garment. I think at that point, you guys have been in a room where you're looking around and something weird's happening. You're going, what's going on? I think that's happening. And I'm sure Peter's probably starting that. What is he doing? This is crazy. What's happening? And he gets up. He takes aside his, he lays the, the garments off. He takes a towel. This would be an enormously long towel, somewhere between 15 to 20 feet long. And you would wrap it around yourself. You'd put it over your shoulders so that you could dry feet and then kind of move it and dry with another portion of it. He'd take the towel. At that point, everybody knows what he's doing. Everybody knows what he's doing. They know what he's about to do. He girds himself with a towel. And then he pours water into the basin. Now it's no question. He brings the basin over and he began to wash the disciples' feet. Calculated, deliberate, slow. For a fisherman to wash another fisherman's feet, it's not too special. But for the Son of God, the one who created everything we see, to wash the feet of those who are sinful, prideful, and at that very moment arguing about who's going to be the greatest. This is amazing. This is amazing. This is humble love's example, to go low, to go as low as possible, and to serve. He washes their feet and wipes them with the towel with which he's girded. Now, point number two, we come to humble love's motivation. So we see the example of humble love. In verse six, he comes to Peter. The word so there tells us that Peter's not the first one. We don't know in the line who is first, but we know Peter's not first. So he's going down the line. And John says, so he comes to Simon Peter. We know, you just know that drama is about to happen when Jesus shows up at Peter's feet. I, I just imagine as Jesus is washing the other disciples' feet, maybe it was only one before Jesus or before Peter. 
We don't have the order. But I just have to imagine that Peter's lying down thinking, I'm never going to let this happen. Why are these, why are these idiots letting him do this? I'm not going to let him do this. And he speaks up. As Jesus comes to Simon Peter, he says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? It's an obvious implication of you shouldn't be doing this. Jesus answered and he said to him, what I do, you don't realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Ultimately, he's going to say, you need to let me do what I'm doing here. You need to obey and let me do what I'm doing. Even if you don't understand, this is so crucial. Sometimes obedience doesn't make sense, right? Sometimes obedience doesn't make sense. God tells us to do something. We kind of look and go, I don't understand where the blessing and the reward or this just looks like it's going to dead end in a very bad place. I think verse seven would tell us, you know what? It will later. It'll make sense later. Just obey now, even if you don't understand why it'll make sense later. Verse eight, Peter says to him, no, 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 never shall you wash my feet. This is a double negative in the Greek. In English, if you do a double negative, it becomes a positive. In Greek, a double negative makes something incredibly forceful. So what Peter is saying is, in all of eternity, Jesus, forever, in no time, in no way, under no circumstance, will you ever wash my feet. It's never going to happen. I think, what, what must Jesus be thinking? I think there might be a place where he goes, man, Peter, you think this is humiliating for me to wash your feet? Wait until you see what's going to happen to me in just a couple hours when I am nailed to a cross, naked, hanging in all of my shame, people spitting on me and mocking me. You think this is humiliating? Just wait. Just wait. And so what does Jesus say? Jesus answered in the middle of verse 8, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. No part with me. That's, we don't have a relationship anymore. Um, you're, you're fired. You're, you're cut off from our relationship. Some would even say you're not even saved, and I think that that's okay considering the context of what's going to be happening here. But the bottom line is you're not in a good relationship. We have no relationship. If you don't let me wash your feet, we have no relationship. So Peter doesn't want no relationship with Jesus. He wants a very good relationship. The last thing he wants is to have no part with Jesus. So he says, well, then just give me a bath. Verse 9, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Completely wash me. If that's what it takes to be in a right relationship and to be a part of what you're doing, I want to be a part of everything. And here's in verse 10 where Jesus is going to tell us that what he's doing by washing their feet is a two-dimensional example. One dimension is what we saw right off the bat. This is an example of serving. Somebody who is at the highest place possible, serving at the lowliest place possible. Just a beautiful example of humility. But here, Jesus is going to bring in a second aspect, two-dimensional example. And in this aspect, Jesus is going to tell us that this is a symbol of a washing of the heart and of a cleansing before God. He says this in verse 10. says to Peter, who said, give me a bath, I want a bath. He says, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. So if you've already bathed and you're already clean and then you get a certain aspect of your body dirty, you don't need to take a bath again. I was outside uh, working on my yard in a couple areas yesterday and my hands got all muddy. I had already taken a bath in the morning, taken a shower in the morning to be able to go on a daddy-daughter date with my daughter and Came back home, did some work. I don't need to take another shower. I'm already clean. I just need to wash my hands. But every single time our hands got dirty, we said, nope, we've got to go take a shower. We would be doing nothing with our lives. And so Jesus says, come on, this is, this is logical. This is reasonable. If you have been cleansed thoroughly, there's still going to be parts of you that are dirty that I'll cleanse. But if you've been cleansed thoroughly already, you don't need to go through that again. And then he makes this statement, you are clean. The you there is in the plural. You all are clean. And then he's going to very quickly say, well, not all of you. There's one who's not, and that's Judas. So what is Jesus saying? When a person believes in Jesus, in saving faith, when a person comes to Jesus, renouncing their sins, 
living in the light of Jesus Christ, trusting in his perfect sacrifice in their place on the cross, they are instantly made clean, perfectly righteous, right? Jesus is perfectly sinless life is given to you. Your record of unrighteousness is taken and canceled at the cross, and Jesus' record of perfection is given to you such that God the Father sees you as if you lived Jesus' perfection. So you're perfect. You're completely sinless positionally before the throne of God. D.A. Carson says it this way, the initial and fundamental cleansing that Christ provides is a once-for-all act Individuals who have been cleansed by Christ's atoning work will doubtless need to have subsequent sins washed away, but the fundamental cleansing can never be repeated. It doesn't need to be repeated. But, as D.A. Carson said, we still sin. We still sin. Salvation does not cure you from ever sinning again. You're clean indeed, Jesus says. You're completely clean, but you still need to be cleansed in certain aspects. You still sin And we always need to depend on Jesus and come back to him for ongoing enjoyment and reconciliation. This is what 1 John says. If you you say, 1 John chapter 1, if you say that you have no sin, you lie, and you're not a part of Christ. But if you do have sin, and you're faithful to confess that, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to cleanse us our sin and to forgive us all of our unrighteousness, cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. We need daily grace. This is what Jesus is saying. You need to be washed perfectly by me if you're going to be perfectly clean. And then you're going to still keep on sinning and you need to be washed by me as well. But it's not justified every single time you sin. You don't need to be justified continually. You're being sanctified. You need daily grace. But if you want to enjoy and experience God's forgiveness, enjoy and experience a right relationship with him, it's dependent upon your ongoing humility and confession of your sin. Your sins must be dealt with. But your ongoing struggle with sin never undoes your justification. Please hear that. We need to be spokespersons for this. We need to be people who would get up and say, God has forgiven me once for all, and as I live, I still struggle with sin. But the struggle that I have with sin... As Jesus cleanses me from that struggle, that struggle never undoes my once-for-all justification. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. If you're truly saved, nothing can separate you, even your own sin, the struggle that you have with your sin. So what Jesus is saying here is, if you want to be an ambassador of him, if you want to go out and be like him, which is what he's going to say in verse 16, you are those who are sent, and you're not greater than the one sending you. So if you want to be sent by Jesus and be an ambassador, you cannot do that if you think you have no sin. You can't be a good ambassador for Jesus if you think you have no sin. You must be humble. You must seek forgiveness. Jesus is saying here, I can't have perfect people. Perfect people going into the world as my ambassadors destroy the people that they're trying to share the gospel with. Well, you must be perfect like, I, like I'm perfect, like Jesus made me perfect. You need to be perfect, sinless. I'm sinless, be sinless. That's the burden that Jesus took away at the cross. Jesus is saying, I can't have legalistic people. I can't have legalistic people here. The motivation here, humble love's motivation is to see I can only be made completely clean if Jesus does that work. Nothing that I do makes me clean. And... Once I am completely clean, I'm still going to mess up and I'm still going to need daily grace. So what Jesus is saying is, guys, you're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. You're all on a level playing field. Nobody's above another person. Nobody here is saying I'm better and more sinless and, and I have it all together. Jesus says you all need to be cleansed by me once for all and then cleansed in an ongoing fashion. Have your hands washed or your feet washed. What Jesus is saying to us this morning is, is, I need people who know what it is to be totally clean and be in need of daily cleansing. I need people, if you want to be an ambassador of Jesus, you need to know what it means to be totally clean and in need of daily cleansing every day. It's a beautiful tension. So he says, you're all clean. What he's saying there is you're all saved. Amazing. What a statement. You're all saved. You have all been cleansed by me in a saving way. And not all of you, Judas, is not saved. 
You've all been saved. You're all clean. Verse 11, Jesus knew the one who was going to betray him, and for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So we have the example, the first dimension. We have the example that Jesus is giving of loving somebody in a lowly, humble way. And then we have our motivation, because we need Jesus to cleanse us. And even when he cleanses us once for all, we still need cleansing because we still struggle with sin. Nobody's better than anyone else. If this humility would permeate our church, I don't think we'd ever fight about anything. I don't think we'd ever fight about anything because we'd constantly be saying, I'm worse than you are. Maybe that's what we'd fight about. I'm worse than you are. No, you're not. I'm worse than you are. No, trust me. I'm a worse sinner than you are. If that's the kind of fighting we have, that's a good fight to have. Number three, we're going to see the blessing of humble love. So we see humble love's example, humble love's motivation, and finally, number three, humble love's blessing. This is in verses 12 through 17. Jesus, if, it makes, if it's unclear thus far, Jesus is going to make it clear. When he had washed their feet, verse 12, taken his garments, reclined at the table, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Let me explain it. Verse 13, you call me, listen to what he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. That is an arrogant claim to make. I am teacher, I'm your teacher, I'm your master, and I'm also your Lord, I'm your God. That's a very arrogant claim, unless it's true. (laughs) If it's true, then there's no arrogance here. He's truly what he's claiming to be. And they know it, but notice how he describes their knowledge of it. You call me teacher, and you call me Lord. And Jesus flips it in verse 14. If I then, the Lord and the teacher. Maybe they thought, yeah, you're a really good teacher. We love having you around as a rabbi. And you also make these crazy claims about being God. And I mean, we'll, we'll say that you are. Jesus says, no, no, let's get one thing straight here. I am God. And that makes me a good teacher. But I'm God first and foremost. And then he says this. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This is an a fortiori argument, right? Greater to the lesser. If I, your Lord, if I am God and I served you, the expanse between me and you is infinite, and I still stoop down to serve you. And if I could do that, then you can do that if the expanse between us, as we learned in point number two, is not an expanse. We are equal before God. Then you can absolutely serve one another. You can absolutely serve one another. And I love how he says that. You should serve one another's feet, not people's feet, not others' feet. He says, in this room of a bunch of disciples fighting about who's to be the greatest, you need to serve the person next to you. This is where it hits home. Jesus served even Judas. He washed even Judas's feet, somebody who was going to betray him. We, too, can wash the feet of those around us that are hard to love, that are difficult to love. Verse 15, I gave you an example that you also should do as I do to you. I gave you an example. This is the lesson. Love like I loved you. Serve like I just served you. Now, some would take this to be a command. They would force it into being an ordinance Like we have baptism, we have communion, and we have foot washing. I don't see that here in the text. Um, Number one, because there's no other text in the New Testament that prescribes foot washing as an ordinance in the church. But number two, what Jesus is saying is the heart of the command that I've given to you to live out is humility, not a specific act. I'm not telling you what I did for you, you should do every first Sunday of the month. I'm telling you what I did for you is an example of how you should live the entirety of your life. Humble love for one another. And he says this in verse 16, truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent, which I'm sending you, greater than the one who sent me. If these things happen to me, if I'm going through these things, they're going to happen to you as well. You're going to have to do this as well. Your fitness to be my ambassador, to be a sent one, is how humble you are. That's the fitness. That's your fitness of what it means to be an ambassador. But he doesn't end there. And this is where we come to the blessing. He doesn't end in verse 16. He says, verse 17, such clear words and such convicting words. I I have existed 
the majority of my week I've existed in verse 17 and been pummeled by this verse time and time again. If you know these things, you are blessed if you what? If you do them. You're blessed if you serve. You're blessed if you humble yourself and go low in the service of God to serve others. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying a couple things here. Number one, he's saying the world is wrong. The world is wrong. Our culture has made pride a virtue and humility a weakness. And the world thinks that happiness only comes from being served. You don't have to tell anybody that, right? No one has to be persuaded that happiness comes from being served. It feels amazing to stay on the couch. It feels amazing to stay there and say, you do it. You do it. But Jesus says joy doesn't come that way. True joy, true satisfaction does not come that way. You want to be truly happy? You get up and you serve. I was reading in my devotions, I'm going through the book of Acts and the book of Proverbs. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Paul's talking to the elders in Ephesus. He's telling them, hey, you need to work really, really hard so that you can give to the poor, bless the poor. And then he says this, because Jesus himself has said, and you know it, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, my pastor brain goes, where did Jesus say that? Like, this is a fun trivia game now. Where in the Gospels did he say that? I'm thinking, hmm, Matthew 5, Beatitudes, blessed. Okay, maybe it's there. No, it's not there. Maybe it's in John and I've preached it. <laughs> I just had a terrible lapse of memory. And I'm thinking, where is this passage? Um, I couldn't find it. And I thought, man, I should resign. Like, I would have lost on my ordination council. Somebody asked this, where did Jesus say that? Well, I would have failed. And then I read in a commentary somewhere that that's not a direct quote from anywhere in the Gospels, and I felt a lot better. (laughs) Yes, I didn't forget something Jesus said. This is good. But as I thought about it, where did Paul get this? Now, could Paul have heard a disciple say that Jesus said that totally, and it just wasn't recorded for us? But as I thought about it, I, I think that Paul might have gotten that statement. It's more blessed to give than to receive from here. Verse 17, John 13, 17 is saying it's more blessed to serve than to be served, to give of yourself than to have somebody give things to you. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be happy? Think of Psalm 1, how blessed is the man. Here's the way to live out a happy, joyful, satisfied life. Everybody's seeking that. You want that? Jesus would say to us this morning, then don't ever consider yourself Just consider others. Live out humble love and you'll be happy. You'll be happy. But that's not all Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, if you want to be happy, you need to do this. But then he also says this. You're blessed only if you do them, not just know them. Not just know the truth here. Can we just be honest? (laughs) It is so much easier to be right than to serve. It's so much easier to debate a position and say, see, I'm right about it, than it is to serve. It's so much easier to read a good book on doctrine than to go and to serve somebody. But what Jesus is saying here is you might have the knowledge, but if it's not accompanied by practice, it's useless. J.C. Ryle says it this way, nothing is more common than to hear people say of doctrine or duty, yeah, we know that, we know that, while they still sit in unbelief and disobedience. They actually seem to flatter themselves that there's something credible and redeeming in knowledge, even when it bears no fruit in the heart or life or character. But the truth is precisely the other way. To know what we ought to be, believe, and do, and yet to be unaffected by our knowledge only adds to the guilt that we have in the sight of God. It's not enough to know right doctrine if that doctrine does not move you to serve, to live differently. One commentator says it this way, what is the use of being sound on the atonement if the atonement doesn't make you sound? What's the use? Your religion is useless if it doesn't produce something in your life. This is where this hit me like a ton of bricks every day that I studied this this week. I love truth. 
I love learning things. Oh, wow, I'm a truth appreciator. And I know we have a lot of truth appreciators here. I, I appreciate And I think as I hear sermons, as I read books, that's amazing. I, I, I hadn't heard it said that way before. Or man, I learned something new today. And I close the book. Thanks, God, for teaching me something new. And if I have appreciated the truth in my heart, nine times out of ten, I go, I appreciated the truth. And I'm different because of it. I think God would say to us this morning, if you haven't applied the truth that you appreciate, your appreciation means nothing. You need to apply the truth. So I think verse 17 is a huge challenge to our souls to beware of the pitfall of being right in knowledge and doctrine and not right in living. You're blessed if you do these things. Only if you do them. Not if you know these, you're blessed. You're blessed if you do them. So, we have humble love's example. We have the motivation for our humble love with one another. And we have blessing. The blessing that comes from utter humility. How do we wrap all this together? Well, I think Jesus would say to us this morning from this text, we need to serve, number one, to represent Jesus. He did this and he gave us an example that we're supposed to live out. We should serve to represent our Savior. We should serve because we're completely clean and we're not better than anybody else. We all need forgiveness and none of us can cleanse ourselves. And we should serve to know true joy and true satisfaction. Now, here's where I want to end. Only humble people love. Only humble people love. Your capacity to love is connected with your ability to humble yourself. If you want to love somebody, you can only love somebody so far as you're able to humble yourself. 1 Corinthians 13, love doesn't seek its own. All love does is just spend itself on others. And Jesus is the greatest model of this. If Jesus did this for his disciples and then ultimately he's going to go to the cross for you and for me, there's nothing that we should think ourselves too good to do in the service of someone else, ever. As we've been going through this text, probably you've had certain things that have come to mind, certain texts that have come to your mind. Think of 1 Peter chapter 5, right? Clothe yourselves with humility. Peter says that remembering this episode, remembering this scene and says, just as Jesus took off his garments and put on the towel, an utterly hum- humiliating thing to do. We need to do the same thing. Clothe yourselves with humility. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus himself said, I, I came not to be served, but to serve. But where I want to end is a passage that I'm sure you've all thought of at least one point during the sermon. Philippians chapter 2. Let's turn there and we'll end here. Philippians chapter 2. Paul says this, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and yes, we have encouragement since these words, if it's literally in the Greek, since, therefore, since you have encouragement in Christ, since you have consolation of love, since you have fellowship in the Spirit, and since you have affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests. We're already doing that perfectly. We do that way too often. Look out for the interests of others. And then he connects it with the love of Christ. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Do what he did, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, not letting go. He didn't regard isos with God to be exactly the same as God. He is very God, and he doesn't regard that as something to look down upon us. Instead, he empties himself. Verse 7, he takes the form of a slave. He's made in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As the hymn writer says, could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? 
to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. On our own to live out what Paul is asking us to live out here in Philippians 2 or to live out what John's telling us to live out through what Jesus did. On our own, Christ-like service is impossible and unattainable. We can only love the way that Jesus is demanding us to love as he has loved because God first loved us. Because he gave us an example and we live on that love. We can serve lowly because in Christ, since we have him, since he first loved us, we have eternal riches that can never be taken away. So we can serve as lowly as we possibly can go because we have riches stored up for us that can never be taken away. We can become nothing because we know that apart from Christ, we are nothing. And he so graciously gave him of himself to save us and to sanctify us. Our security and our eternal glory are ours without any risk of losing it because of what Jesus did. So we can serve gladly. And we do serve gladly for the glory of our King. God, thank you so much for the example that Jesus has given us. God, we want to serve for the glory of our King. We want to serve to shine forth the example that the Master gave to us. We want to serve to show others the amazing love that Jesus has given And God, we are overwhelmed by our own pride and our own selfishness. Oh, how often we choose to be served rather than to serve. So God, I pray that we would be undone this morning as we see the service of Jesus, as we see his great and glorious love given in an amazing display in the upper room and then ultimately at the cross for us. We love him. We want to be more like him. And we thank you for Jesus.